Good morning, everyone. It's good to have you here at First Christian Church. Very glad you're with us. If you're a guest with us today, let me introduce myself. My name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team, and I'm very glad you're with us. To everybody in the East Auditorium as well, we're glad you're here. Our friends and brothers and sisters in Lovington, and everybody who's watching and participating online. Welcome again to First Christian Church. It's um. It's been a great morning already, and uh, I'm glad you get to participate in it. I'd invite you to take your Bible, please, and turn to Isaiah. It's pretty much in the middle of the Bible, okay? Isaiah chapter 3 is where we're going to be looking. Isaiah 3, it'll be take us a few minutes to get there. Some of you are looking like, what's going on, right? All right, you get to sit down. Some of you didn't know, did you? The Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah. Tradition says that whenever you hear that music, you're supposed to stop and stand, whatever you're doing, and stand up right then. Some of you knew that, obviously others of you didn't. You're going, oh, this is really weird. You're going like, was this a test? Well, not necessarily a test, just an example. Uh, let me see if I can explain to you why you're going like, well, what just happened? Happened probably, I would say, in all the rooms we've been doing it this morning, and um, here's why. Handel wrote his most famous piece called The Messiah in 1741. He composed it feverishly in 24 days, using text that was from Isaiah. And so the whole passage, the whole oratorio, it's a long piece, it's got all kinds of the vocalists yell their lungs out. They have to sing so high and they're so low and it's all over the place. There were times he indicated, he said, he felt as if he was writing with divine inspiration and when he wrote the portion that you just heard called the Hallelujah Chorus, which comes at the end of the piece, he said, it was as if I saw all of heaven before me. And why did people stand? Some of you knew the story, some of you didn't. Some of you knew the rule, some didn't. Here's the rule. Folklore says that when the piece was first performed in London, that King George II was in attendance. And uh, toward the end of the oratorio, the Hallelujah Chorus kicks in, and there's been all this talk of ugliness and chaos and lots of difficult stuff that we're going to see in Isaiah today. And then you get to the Hallelujah Chorus, and there's this big turn in Handel's work, and according to folklore, the king at that moment stood up with the lyrics proclaiming that Jesus rules forever and peace is given to all humanity in the days to come. And so, in royal settings, when the king stands, what does everybody else do? Stand. And so, if King George, George stood, then the audience stood for this wonderful news of Jesus' victory over death. Now, in retrospect, historians wonder if this really happened. We don't really know if the king stood or not, but it's the way it's been told. They don't really know if he did stand, why he stood. Was he stretching his legs because he'd been sitting for a long time? Did he think that the, the whole thing was over? Did he say, I'm bored, I'm out of here? If you take music classes and you go to university and they teach you music history, live and say, there's great debate as to whether or not he just need to stand up so he could go use the bathroom. But nonetheless, since then, Whenever the Hallelujah Chorus is played, it's expected that the audience will stand. So next time you hear the Hallelujah Chorus, you might want to stand. That might be a hint. That just might be a hint for things to come. 
Why am I telling you this? Because our study of the book of Isaiah today focuses on, or put it this way, that oratorio focuses on what we're studying today. And so that's where Handel got all his information for his most well-known work. I want to tell you another story about Isaiah today that's a, a little more troubling than whether or not you stand up when a particular piece of music is sung or performed. It's a little more troubling in this way. This past week, a um, humanitarian crisis deepened uh, in some parts of northern Syria. Syria has been in turmoil for years, and we could use words like civil war and chemical warfare, death, disease, torture. Those sorts of words are not the kinds of words you'd say, let's start a story by talking about chemical warfare and death and disease and torture. But that's what's been going on there of late. Turkey is now engaged in battles against the Kurds of Syria. The White House appears to be struggling to know what to do. We're in, we're out, we're brokering a ceasefire, we're sending mixed messages, and um, in the midst of it, the United Nations seems quite emasculated in its response to know what to do. They would like to bring peace to that area of the world or to our world in general, and sometimes you've noticed the UN can't always pull that off, can they? It's more of an observation that's, um, I would say, a disappointment. We wish that the UN would be able to do that kind of work. I say disappointment because we've learned since the 1940s when the UN was formed, we've learned that our best minds across the world, our best bureaucratic minds and our best diplomatic minds can't often, can't always bring peace to places of the world that are at war. And you take the story of Syria and Turkey and the Kurds, they've been arguing with one another and killing one another for coming up on 100 years. Perhaps you're aware that the UN was formed out of the pain of World War II. And um, when the UN was formed to say we're going to deal with these sorts of issues, um, in, included in their charter was this language, that all members shall refrain in their international relations from the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity or the political independence of any state or any manner inconsistent with peace. In other words, if you belong to the UN... You're not supposed to use weapons against another nation in an effort to increase your territory. Now we all know that's not necessarily been the case. What's interesting, though, is that as John Louth with the European Journal of International Law recently observed, this charter sounds remarkably familiar to those of us who might have any information or any knowledge of Scripture, particularly the book of Isaiah, because after all, Isaiah predicts a time when, verse, chapter 2, verse 4, when God will judge between the nations and God will settle disputes for many peoples. They'll beat their swords into plowshares. In other words, they won't need weapons anymore. Their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war. I want you to notice the similarity between the two statements. The UN statement seems remarkably like the hope and the desire and the expectation of Isaiah that was written... 2,700 years ago, 2,700 years ago, Isaiah said, weapons will no longer be needed. Hmm. Don't we wish the world would take on that Isaiah approach regarding international affairs, even in Syria this week? The UN, we could say this way, reflects the hope of Isaiah. And what we're going to do today, given those stories, one sort of lighthearted, regarding the King George II, another much more difficult to deal with, and that's the UN and Syria. Both those stories, if you will, coming out of the impact of Isaiah upon our world, we are going to 
review Isaiah today as we continue on with our walk through the Bible in 13 weeks. We started back in Genesis, and I've got to tell you, friends, in the early part of this study, it was fairly easy to figure out where we were. As a matter of fact, if you've been reading along, you notice we started in Genesis, and then you just kind of flip page to page to page going forward. We got all the way on our timeline, if you look at that timeline, we got all the way to 1000 BCE, and things from then on got a little bit murky. As a matter of fact, here's how I could explain to you. After David... Well, do this. Would you take your Bible or take a Bible, maybe even on your smartphone, and look at the table of contents? Because I'm going to maybe explain something for you here right now that would be helpful to you. If you look at the table of contents, you'll see that the first book of the Bible is the book called Genesis, right? And then you've got Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And all of that basically is in chronological order of when things happened in history. So you go through the first five books, then you get to Joshua and more history going forward in time, all the way to the end of 2 Kings. 2 Kings ends around about 586 BC on our timeline where it says Babylon there. And you go, wait, there's a whole lot more books yet that are yet to come. What happens to them? Well, what happens is you get to the end of 2 Kings and you look at 1 Chronicles. If you start reading in 1 Chronicles, it goes backwards in time to the same time as 1 Kings. Well, that's confusing. No one ever told me that, right? And then you go over through First and Second Chronicles, and then to, you go forward a few more books, and do you see the book of Psalms there? Okay, you're going backwards again. This time the book of Psalms is often around, somewhere around 1,000 BC. You move forward to the end of the Old Testament with Malachi, and Zechariah and Malachi, and you end up back at 586 BC. So look on our timeline there. So you've gone back and forth many times throughout the scriptures from 1000 to 586, 536 BC. But then you know what? Look again. So on the timeline, we keep going forward. We go, well, where's 444 BC? Well, look where Nehemiah is. Nehemiah is before Psalms. So my point in all of this is to, to have you realize that these last few weeks of our review of the, if you will, the story of the Old Testament, it can be, fusing, it can be confusing when it comes to um, where everything fits in the timeline. And so with that in mind, as we look at Isaiah today, I would like you to keep this in mind. That the first part of the book, first part of Isaiah, is somewhere around 722 where Assyria is mentioned on our timeline. But the end of the book is somewhere around 586, 566 in that area. So it covers 140 to 160 years, and you go, well, how can one guy write a book that's 160 years long? Well, probably he didn't. What biblical scholars would say is that a fellow by the name of Isaiah starts writing, and he dies, and then a few years later, a couple decades later, another guy, nameless, if we will, picks up the story and continues on through the rest of the book. What we need to focus on today is, what I, what's important here is not who wrote it, but what is being said in this important part, this holy portion of Scripture. What you need to understand is through that whole period of time, it were very, very desperate times. The nation of God had wandered away from God's commands. God said, follow me and I'm going to provide protection for you. We've talked about this in the past. I'll provide a covering and I'll bless you. 
But the moment they begin to wander away from God, then that protection disappears. Not that God took it away, but they walked away from it. And Isaiah, throughout all of the the book, says that there's trouble among us, and he describes the trouble in chapter 3. Would you read with me, please? See now the Lord, the Lord Almighty, is about to take from Jerusalem and Judah, something's going to be gone, both supply and support. So when we say supply and support, that means all the food and the water is going to go and all the support being people. So all the bureaucrats are going to go. All the workers are going to go. As a matter of fact, he describes how that goes. All the supplies of food and all supplies of water are going to be gone. The hero, the warrior, the judge, the prophet, the diviner, the elder, the captain of the 50, the man of rank, the counselor, skilled craftsman, and clever enchanter. Everybody of rank, everybody of um, leadership is going to be taken off in slavery. And that's what exactly happened in 586 BC. And then the Babylonians are in charge of them. And they have young men who are soldiers in charge of Jerusalem and Judah. I'll make mere use of their officials. Children will rule over them. What's going to happen in the city? People will oppress each other, man against man, neighbor against neighbor. The young will rise up against the old, the nobody against the honored. A man will seize one of his brothers in his father's house and say, you have a cloak. Of all the destruction that we've faced, somehow or other you had the smarts to keep your coat. So in that light, you be the leader. Take charge of this heap of ruins. But in that day he'll cry out, I don't want to lead. I don't have the answer. I have no remedy. I have no food or clothing in my house. Don't make me the leader of the people. What's it going to look like? Jerusalem staggers. Judah is falling. The words and deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. They have paid no attention to God whatsoever. The look on their faces testifies against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. They don't hide. They do not hide it. Woe to them. They have brought disaster upon themselves. Why is it like this? Why is this struggle taking place in the city? Well, because the nation has moved away from God. First the northern part of Israel, then the southern part of Judah. They leave their, the following of God, and consequently they go from being the world leaders to being oppressed. They, basically, you could think of it this way. They have their military might, it disappears, their economic power disappears, and in the vacuum, two nations, one after the other, come and fill the space, uh, fill the void of, the, of leading the world. The Assyrians at first, and then the secondly, the Babylonians, they come in and they literally annihilate people after people after people. As a matter of fact, they, they're not like the, like the Jewish nation where they just take over. These, these people take over, but then they kill and they maim. They now lead and they oppress And the people of God get the short stick very badly. So Isaiah is both a warning and a description saying, listen, the days we live in right now, with a foreign army around us, these days are chaotic and crazy. Our leaders, they're useless, godless. Other nations are overtaking us. Some of us will die. Some are being carted into slavery. And history shows that. Here, history shows that weapons of warfare... Weapons of disaster brought death and torture, slavery to the nation. Yet, in the midst of this, while Isaiah is describing what's going on around him, all the chaos and the ugliness that sometimes might be similar to our own world at times, when life is really ugly, in the midst of all this mess, Isaiah says, someone is going to come along, 
Someone is going to change the world's ways, and we're, we're going to change the world's ways of violence and anger and death and torture. And he says, this person will bring peace to humanity in general, and of course to individuals, particularly like you and me. You recall the passage we read earlier, Isaiah chapter 2 describes it this way, that God will judge between the nations, God will settle disputes between, for many peoples, and what will they do? They won't need weapons anymore. They'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Remember, that's the thing we said looks very similar to the UN Charter. Well, I want to show you today how that passage of Scripture is displayed at the UN. Because there's a wall right across the street from the UN building... It's a staircase. It's the wall of a staircase that was built in 1948 as the UN building was going up. And in 1975, an inscription was, um, was engraved on the wall. Look at what is on the wall right across the street from the UN. It says, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Isn't it fascinating? That every time a UN walker steps out of the building, whether, whether it's somebody who works there in bureaucracy or somebody who does the cleaning, somebody who takes care of the, the grounds, whatever, every time a UN worker leaves the building, what do they see? Every time a UN diplomat leaves the building, every time an international leader comes into that building and then leaves, they face this wall. They face this scripture of 2,700 years ago stating there'll be a time when weapons will be made into farming machines. And what's fascinating is not only is this scripture now being, the scripture of Isaiah 2 being attempted in our time, Isaiah also tells us how it will take place. He says it's going to be through a person who will change the ways of violence and anger and death and torture. And this person is described in Isaiah 53, if you'll flip over there. Isaiah 53, this person, Isaiah says, will die for the sins of war and torture and violence that's found in humanity in you and me. And so who's this about? This is about Jesus Christ, written some five to six hundred years before Jesus' birth, his ministry, his death and resurrection. We read this in Isaiah 53. Has anyone, who has believed, has anyone believed the message that we've been telling you in regarding the arm of the Lord's being revealed. And is anyone believing how we're describing this chaos that we live in? If so, pay attention to this. Jesus grew up before God like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. Jesus had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Jesus was despised and rejected by mankind. Now, they're not saying, he's not saying the word Jesus yet. Five, six hundred years before Jesus is born, he's just predicting who's go someone's going to come that does this. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. We considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but that wasn't the case. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was pierced for the wrong things we did wrong. He was crushed for our iniquities, our sins. The punishment that brought us peace, the way in which we stand clear and free before God, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. 
We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he didn't open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? Was there anyone around who stopped this killing of Jesus take place? No. He was cut off from the land of the living. He died. From the tra- for the transgressions of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich at his death. He died in Joseph's tomb. He was placed, his body was placed in Joseph's tomb uh, seven, 600 years later. He was placed in a rich man's tomb. Though he had no, done no violence, nor was any conceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he, Jesus, will see his offspring and prolong his days. He will see people come after him. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, after he has died, what happens? He will see the light of life. He will rise again and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. He will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I'll give him a portion among the great. This is a description of what we just participated in at communion time, wasn't it? At communion time, we remember that Jesus died for us, that our sins are covered by his blood, by his sacrificial death. As Eugene Peterson says, it was our pains he carried, our disfigurements, all the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures. But it was our sins that did it to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him. Our sins, he took the punishment, and that made us whole. Through his bruises, we get healed, and God has piled all our sins, everything we've done wrong, on him, on him, on Jesus. Friends, may I tell you, this is wonderful news. That in the midst of the chaos of Isaiah, in the midst of the chaos of our own wrongdoings, in the midst of the chaos of our world in 2019, peace has come to us individually now and will come to all humanity in days to come. Some six centuries before he was born, the story of Jesus' life was predicted. The great news of Jesus' triumph over sin and violence and death was foretold. We have reason to celebrate. We have reason to declare, hallelujah, God is good. Something really wonderful. And you all learned a great lesson this morning. Good job. All right, thank you. Maybe seated, friends. Man, thanks for listening. How well you did with that. If there was ever reason to say hallelujah, if there was ever reason to stand up and say, God is really good, it's upon recognizing that our sins are forgiven and that Jesus' arrival on earth and his sacrifice on our behalf is great news. It's a hallelujah. Here's what we could say. That just as the New Testament details Jesus' life, so Isaiah tells some of the gruesome aspects of Jesus' death. But in doing so, it describes how our personal peace and humanity's peace eventually will all come to a wonderful resolution. It's a story of hope. We know, though, of course, who are we kidding? I know many of you here today, and I know your lives, you know my life, and you are aware that we're not in places yet where we'd say, man, everything is at peace. We're not at the end of human history. You say, there are issues within my life that need some correction and some fixing up. 
There are places within human history and human life, and we still wait for the days when weapons will become plows. We know what plows look like around here in the Midwest. We wait for the days when the steel that goes into making weapons of warfare will be actually steel that goes into making plows and planters and combines and sprayers and instruments that feed people instead of killing them. We wait, don't we? We've got the peace personally, but we're waiting for the peace for the world. What do we do? Well, let me give you just a couple of lessons to ponder today. Some lessons from Isaiah. First of all, what Isaiah tells us is that God is in control. That history has a flow to it. That there is a, way, a place in which history is going. That it begins in Genesis. There's a moment when, when peace is coming in the future. And that just as God is in control of history, so God is also in control of the history of each and every one of the followers of Jesus Christ. In the midst of chaotic moments of death and struggle and disease and torture of 506 years ago, 500, pardon me, 500 to 600 years before he was born, Jesus' ministry was predicted. God was in control then. And friend, I want you to be certain, God is in control now. There is a plan in place. Jesus' followers believe that. And we wait. In other words, our story, your story, is not complete yet. And just as God is in control, then we would say this, that as a follower of Jesus Christ, we lean into God's story of faithfulness of the past. See, Centuries before Jesus was born, the people of Israel said, in the midst of our chaotic moment, we are gonna, we're going to trust God for the days ahead. Our lives might be filled with all sorts of trauma, but the scriptures say that God is in control. And those of us who believe that in our time, we lean into God's faithfulness of the past. We lean in saying the track record of Jesus' arrival, pardon me, of Jesus' prediction, that there's a prediction that he's going to come, and then his arrival 600 years later, that all points to a, an ongoing faithfulness of God, a track record that we can rely on, regardless of the present struggles. We would say, hallelujah. We'd say, I trust. We'd say, I, I'm, I'm going to lean in. For, for example, I want you to watch, as we close here today, and listen to the story of God's faithfulness being played out over a long period of time in the life of one of my friends. So I'm in Stan Crouch's house. Stan and I have known each other for a long time. How, how long have we been known each other? Oh, since 96. 96. You, you came to us. Were you a Methodist before you became I was, a Christian? I was. That yes. shows you we let anybody in the building. That's <laughs> true. True. So Stan and I, we've, we've done a lot of things over the years. We've had conversations. I've been in his home, uh, particularly um, doing some difficult days. Uh, indeed. Yeah. yeah, really. So you've walked with Jesus for a long time. I have indeed. How, can we? Can you tell everyone how old you are? Is that, that, is that appropriate? That doesn't bother me. I'm 88. So. 88. Yeah. But um, you faced something that most men don't face, and that is you, you've outlived your wife. I have, yes. She yeah. died a lot of years ago now. Yeah, she died when she was 65. Yeah. From oh. our, she had a cardiac arrest. Right, and I remember being at the house right after that, mm -hmm. as that, you know, yeah. when the family was gathering. And then a year later, almost to the day, a day almost, and a Exactly. Almost the day my son died, yeah, right. So how many years you've walked with Jesus, do you think? 
Oh, boy, I'm soon the better part of all my life. Wait, right, wait. right. And tell me, how, how has the faithfulness of God been very evident, particularly since your wife passed away and your son? I'll tell you, if it hadn't been for the church and you and your people, I don't think I could have coasted through to where I am today right. without having having uh, everybody kind of looking after me and paying attention to make sure I had someone to talk to and all that because I, you know, it's a it's a little rough as as you can understand when when uh, when your wife goes you weren't expecting it to happen I wasn't expecting it my kids weren't expecting it it's and a, then a year later lose my son so 22 23 years now yeah right 23. It's a long time to be uh, relying totally on the Lord. Well, I relied on him long before that. <laughs> long before that. <laughs> yeah. Um, wait, wait, can I tell you this? When I, when I see you in our worship services every weekend, I, you're probably one of the older guys out there. I think so. And it just thrills me to know, okay, here we have this congregation with probably four or five different generations worshiping mm -hmm. together. But I look out and I go, well, Stan's still ready to hear, Stan is always ready to hear the word of the Lord, so that's good news. It, it, well, it's good news for me as well. Yeah. Because I am always ready. So uh, I'm very glad that you're part of the life of our church and uh, that your story of 88 years speaks to the faithfulness of God. Amen. That's all I can say is amen. I don't know, there again, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't be here today, Wayne, it wasn't even, it wasn't for my faith in God and his being with me each day of my life. So that's great news. Yeah, well, it is good news. It is good, good news. Thank you. Good stuff. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Every morning, every night. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> Doesn't get any better than that, folks. Doesn't get yeah. any better than that. Thanks, Stan. You're welcome. You're welcome. Manifold 
You did all right, Stan. You did all right. Thank you. You did all right. Thank you. Thank you. We've asked him to do this three times this weekend. And if anything declares the faithfulness of God, he's doing it three times, right? You know, there's a, a verse in that, um, in that hymn that we just did. It's the second verse. It says, summer and winter, springtime and harvest. And uh, that's the four seasons, right? Summer and winter, springtime, harvest. And... It's not just about what's going on outside and what plants are being put in the ground or being harvested out of the ground or whether it's cold or hot. Really, isn't that the times of our lives, times when life is really hot and, you know, it's lots of activity? There are times when it's cold and it's like, I don't know, pretty rough. Don't want to go outside. There are times when there's lots of planting done in our lives and there are wonderful moments when all of that comes to fruition and we get to harvest something. But it says, in the midst of all the different seasons of our lives, God is faithful. The people of Jerusalem learned that in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of all of the times of their lives, God was faithful. God sent Jesus Christ. Today, I'd invite you to sing it with me again and to declare God's faithfulness that summer and winter, springtime and harvest, God is faithful indeed. Would you sing it with me, please? Summer and winter, springtime and harvest. So- 
Thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. 